whenever I would do a project, they would be baffled by the fact that I would assume a Kirby-type style to do the book in. For uh, someone who grew up trying to draw like Jack Kirby, in fact, that he was the guy that I learned to draw from in the first place when I was copying his drawings back in high school. They didn't know what to make of that. And they mentioned that several times, and they were confused as I was confused about why I didn't draw it in, in my natural style. I mean, there's always going to be a lot of my natural style, but when you're drawing a Thor, a book that I do is a Kirby book, you drew it with a sense of Jack Kirby in the back of your mind. They didn't know what to make of that. But it couldn't really exist or feel real to me or authentic unless it was done in the spirit of the guys I grew up reading that made the books so incredible to me. So Spider-Man was John Romita. All the other books were Kirby. And The Hulk and Superman was part Kirby and part Joe Schuster. Action. Welcome to Cinema Splash Page. I'm Michael Brody, and back in the early 2000s, I managed a couple of comic book shops and ran a couple of video stores too. Those were the days. Lately, I host a weekly radio program, publish the occasional short story, and spend my Sunday nights running a live show I call The Best Damn Trivia in Montreal. You can find me on stage asking some very silly questions every Sunday at 8pm at a place called Grumpy's Bar in downtown Montreal, Quebec. Okay, so... Comic book fans seem to agree that there are very few perfect comics. Of course, if there are any, then this list might include Fantastic Four number 51, This Man, This Monster, by Lee and Kirby. Superman Annual number 11, For the Man Who Has Everything, by Moore and Gibbons. And Amazing Spider-Man number 33, called The Final Chapter, by Lee and Ditko which is the classic story where Spider-Man lifts an impossibly heavy chunk of machinery up right before he drowns. All right, so if those are considered perfect comics, then I would like to add three more to that list. The Mr. Miracle Special from 1987 by Mark Evanier and Steve Rude. The Space Ghost one-shot from Comico, also by Mark Evanier and Steve Rude. And finally, issue number 39, of Nexus, the one where Nexus drowns a mass murderer in a lake right before grabbing the killer's fishing rod and reeling in a giant fish. That scene, in particular, is spectacular and perfect. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend you check it out for yourself. Nexus, number 39. My guest today is Steve Rude, the man responsible for bringing to life those three comics I just described and many more. In his over 30-year career, Steve has produced some of the most elegantly paced and gorgeous comic books of all time. He's a master of visual storytelling with a deceptively simple, streamlined, and highly emotive style that draws the eye from panel to panel with a compelling rhythm that is unmatched by almost anyone else working in the industry. Oh yeah, and he's a pretty good painter too. Steve, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Michael. Nice introduction there. I'm very, uh, very flattering and I very much appreciate that. Um, now, I've seen this written down about 400 times, but do people really call you the dude? Yeah. Um, the funny thing about the name, you know, it's been around for a long time, and I actually had some worries that it might grow old-fashioned at some point. But now, <laughs> rather than getting old, it seems to be um, 
uh, said even more nowadays. It's a, it's like a name that never wants to die. I think you predate the Big Lebowski with that name by about 15 years. About, yeah. <laughs> well, Steve, um, on this show, we tend to talk to people about their influences, things that have inspired and influenced them. What do you have to start off with, something that we can talk about that may have inspired you over the years? Well, I... Um... If anyone answers a question uh, differently than this, I'd be surprised. Um, you know, as you're when you're a kid, you're you're obviously looking for something to do and, and something to watch, and uh, you've got to stay busy. And people throughout their lives have to stay busy, uh, no matter what age they are. A kid has to stay busy. You know, we used to stay busy by going outside and playing sports. Um, nowadays, that's that's kind of in question as to what people do, but um, that's what we did back then. Uh, so those were much better times and. The times people seem to have today where they they don't go outside at all so i'm really glad i grew up when i did but it was the um i started with the saturday morning cartoon shows started with mighty mouse mighty mouse was doing reruns at the time and these reruns are all based on the theatrical cartoons that were made before television came about when, t when television did come about they needed content for uh, tv shows so they they relied on things from the past to uh, fill up airtime. And a lot of those were based on those theatrical cartoons that were so big and they, the theaters were dependent on those to kind of open the, the shows for, for kids and Saturday matinee shows or general movies um, at all. So that's that's how they used to fill up their, their Saturday morning airtime. And a lot of those cartoons were the ones that I saw and they were phenomenally well done. Little did we know they were they were actually done for a mass audience and, and they had theater quality animation later on you know things expanded joe barbera and bill Hanna came along and once they were kicked out of mgm they were folding their their animation division like a lot of people were doing in the late 1950s people have to put it under ingenuity cap what are we going to do now we're out of a job and so we got to think so they thought up well, why don't we try to do something that's impossible? And the impossible was putting a TV, uh, putting an animated cartoon show, the ones that used to take eight months to produce, and do it in half that time, if not if not one third the time, as a weekly TV show. So they had to brainstorm and they had to think really hard about how they were going to do that. Well, the good thing about people with imagination is that they they can always find a way to do these things that they think hard enough. And, and if they're they're determined to find a way to do things, I, I love that kind of attitude. I've always, I've always had that on my own too. So those cartoons developed into the superhero cartoons, and those were the ones that influenced me the most. At the same time, I discovered comic books, and the comic books that influenced me the most were far and away the Marvel comic books, and far and away the artists that influenced me the most was. The guy that was joined Captain America, Thor, and um, the Fantastic Four, and that was Jack Kirby. Once I saw his art, my jaw dropped, and it, it never, it never got back into place. Just to stay on the cartoon show theme for a second, unless I'm mistaken, uh, some slightly uh, inspirational shows for you might have been Johnny Quest and Space Ghost. And what I think is funny is you're a little bit older than me, so I imagine you watched those first run. So I saw them about 10 years later when they were the early morning filler shows. So I also grew up on Johnny Quest and Space Ghost and a few other things. 
Yeah, one of the things I, I remember that people um, might find interesting is that when when the Johnny Quest show came on, it was prime time. It came on at like 7.30 or whatever. And what I recall that's interesting is that the whole family used to watch that show. It was a black and white TV set that we had. And believe it or not, we never missed, uh, we never once missed the fact that it was in color. We just watched it as it, as it came on the air and it was in black and white. And we enjoyed it for what it was. And certain kids would, would watch these kind of shows and they would just take to it. They would just kind of mesh with their personalities. And I was one of those kids whose personality meshed with that perfectly. Two years later, in 1966, there was this superhero revival thing going on for whatever reason. I'm not really sure why. Perhaps it was the, the comic book trend that was going on with all the superheroes coming out of the comic book companies. But HB, Hanna-Barbera, decided to follow the trend and produce kind of what Johnny Quest started. Uh, Doug Wildey, the creator of Johnny Quest, told me at one time that Johnny Quest was supposed to be the first of many action-adventure shows that were done in a comic book style. And of course, Doug, you know, being the age that he was, was influenced by the same strip that everyone was during during his age group, which prominently, most prominently, was Terry and the Pirates and uh, Flash Gordon and, and, and Prince Valiant. So it's not it's not a unique thing to to, uh, to understand that every age group is influenced by what came at the time they were they were young. Every age group is influenced by what is there at the time when they're young. Uh, no different for me. I saw Space Ghosts come out. What I remember most about that was I had so many friends back then, and I was, it was a magical time in my life. And we were hanging around, and, and uh, we had an orchard, an abandoned orchard in Madison, Wisconsin. And we always hung out there. We used to hang out at the trees and eat apples and catch snakes, chase birds, and all the fun stuff kids should be doing at that time in their life. And we saw the ads for the show, and this guy had a black hood on his mask, and he had a really cool ship. And we were all abuzz about that. And we couldn't stop talking about how cool it was. And these were just the ads. So when the show finally came out, it was another jaw-dropping moment where the jaws just dropped. And for some reason, that show, it's hard to describe, right? I mean, sometimes you just see these things in your life, and they, they seem to be patently made for just you. Well, that's the way I felt about this particular show. It was the music. It was the animation. It was the costume design. It was everything about the show that just stunned me. So time passes. I had an aptitude for drawing. You graduate from high school. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? Well, I loved comic books. So ergo, start practicing, Steve. Start practicing and getting better. Go to an art school. Learn as much as you can. Go Go on to the next art school. Find good teachers that teach you all the things that you don't know, which is everything. And keep going and keep going until you learn what you need to learn. And the funny thing is, I, what I've learned, Michael, is that the learning process never ends. I'm still taking classes from various teachers that know more than me. I, uh, I also grew up with a black and white television briefly, and I still remember seeing the ad for a rerun that said, Next up, Bewitched in color, which completely confused me as a small child. And I searched the screen looking for where those colors might be at the time. I'm talking about being four or five years old. Well, the big one for me was, uh, of course, and a lot of people are going to remember this, the Invaders in color. I think that was a Larry Cohen show. He was the uh, filmmaker who went on to do It's Alive and Q, the Winged Serpent. 
but I think he was the creator of that show. Well, you are smarter than I ever was because I didn't know that until a couple of years ago. Larry Cohen was indeed the creator of The Invaders. I'm just an IMDb addict, and I follow artists who interest me through all of their pages and try to figure out where I can find these more obscure TV shows and films. Oh, I see in the background you have uh, what might be a cell from the Johnny Quest show on the wall. Yeah, that has a great story behind it. Um, HB finally decided to have a licensing department, something they neglected for the first 50 years. And when Fred Seibert was in charge of he was the president of Hanna-Barbera, just a great guy. Um, still laid back and so cool. So when he decided to get his apartment going on in another wing of the building, and I, and I was somebody they got to know very well. So they would call me in and they, they decided, well, we wanted to do some Johnny Quest stuff. And the funny thing is, I was much more known for Space Ghost than Johnny Quest, but for some reason they glommed onto me with all this Johnny Quest work. And that's a product of what I ended up doing. That's basically my work on that cell right there. So uh, why don't you tell us about another uh, influence from that period of your life as we move up? You said you were learning and you're, you're going to keep on learning forever. What else have you looked at in your life and thought, I want to do that? Well, a couple of things I remember from my youth. And remember, these were just, um, you can always know what interests people because you don't got to tell them what they should be interested in. They just automatically go for that. And one of the things I went for was I had a inert fascination on UFOs, Bigfoot, and the Loch Ness Monster. And they still haven't found the damn Bigfoot <laughs> or the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> UFOs are everywhere. I have heard a funny story about uh, Bigfoot by the obsessives, the people who are incredibly obsessed with the footage, the Patterson-Gimlet footage. They say yeah. that at some point it was discovered that one of them had purchased some kind of gorilla suit and that there was, in fact, uh, an, an order slip somewhere for this. And the diehards said, the people who are 100% believers apparently said... Well, here's what I believe. I believe they were on their way into the woods to fake some footage when they ran across the real Bigfoot. Wouldn't that be a story? <laughs> so beyond Bigfoot and uh, Loch Ness Monster, and, and I mean, or tell me, is there any way that you've incorporated that into your, into your own work? Well, if you recall, one of the books I happened to be part of, uh, Hulk versus Superman, if, you, if you'll note on the very first page, the Hulk is skulking off into the distance. Um, if you look at his posture, it's very reminiscent of the uh, Patterson-Gimlet film of the posture of Bigfoot. Oh, that's great. No, I didn't realize that, and I am going to have to reread it now. I uh, I did love that book. I was, um, I was... I remember at the time that it was published being so impressed in how good Al Milgram's inking looked on you. And it, it seemed completely different than the style he'd shown working on Starlin or working on his own stuff over the years. Was that a surprise to you? I don't know if you liked it. I don't know if you didn't. Uh, I quite liked it. I was very impressed with Al. I handpicked him. But another thing that people may not know about is I get the I get the inks back to supervise and go over them before they go to print. Oh, that is very cool. I mean, when it, <laughs> 
when it comes to all of the ink work, what a I, I mean, I did a deep dive into your uh, your bibliography yesterday and made notes on everybody who's worked with you. And uh, looking through all of the works, the one I mean, I like almost everyone who's worked on your stuff, but the one that really stood out for me, of course, being Mike Royer. Now, of course, I know that he was a longtime Kirby collaborator. So when you're doing something in the fourth world and you have the Mike Royer stuff on top, there is a little bit of magic carrying over on those. Yeah, I agree. I mean, anything that came up that was Kirby related, I think that was that was starting with the Mr. Miracle special that you brought up. Uh, who else are you going to think about besides Mike Royer to be doing the inking chores and that? Oh, I saw that you co-plotted the Space Ghost book. Did you have any? Uh, did you have any input into the Mister Miracle story when you were working on that? As I recall, not a whole lot. I did have a lot to do with the uh, the Jimmy Olsen special that we me and Mark did. I had a lot to do with that. Oh, that's great. I uh, recently reread that, and I was kind of amazed that that wasn't a standalone one-shot and was instead just sort of a number 14 of a random series. We had to, we had to pull teeth to get that book done in the first place. It has a really interesting through-line about a cowardly doorman. Do you remember that plot point? Oh, yeah. I think that was one of the main things that Mark contributed, but the actual visual visual part of that doorman came from someone I knew in high school and the guy happened to be a real klutz everyone picked on him because he was you know th that kind of a guy so I, I when I think about characters you know who am I going to make this guy he was pretty anonymous in the Jack Kirby book he appeared for like one panel so I have to take these things in, in kind of rudism a little bit I have a pretty weird imagination it's very strange a lot of it came from Dr. Seuss so it's very fanciful so I've got, when I when I get these these stories, I've got to turn them into things that reflect my odd personality and my sense of humor. So that's another thing that people should know about. Whenever they see a book drawn by somebody, it's it's filtered very much through their own personality. Any ten people that work, this is actually something I've thought about. Somebody should take a book and put ten different artists on the same story, ten page, twelve page story, so people can see how everybody interprets it so differently because it'll come out so different. Well, you're making the Academy Awards argument that I've heard many times. The idea of um, putting 10 different actors or actresses against each other for different roles barely makes sense. Whereas, I've heard actors say this, if you want to give us an award, get all 10 people to do the same part and then judge who did that best. God, I think that's brilliant. I have never heard of that, Michael, but boy, that sure resonates with me. You know, let the best person win. So what story, if you could think of one from uh, all the comics you've ever read, would you like to see reinterpreted by 10 different artists? You know, I think the fairest way to, to judge that, Michael, is just to say, pick one and then just throw it in the lion's den. That's a very good idea. How about, uh, let's, let's, let's go with, I mentioned it earlier, let's go with uh, Fantastic Four 51, that, uh, that story about the thing where they introduced the negative zone. Yeah, I've got several FF stories that I consider utter classics. One of them is, um, and I don't know exactly the issue number, I think it's along the, the lines of 70 or 71, but it's the red cover with Galactus and the head of Galactus and the heads of the FF characters on the cover, but it's all red. And everything that happens in there from the very beginning is a testament to the genius of both writer and artist. You know, I know, I know Kirby for, we've all pretty much agreed and ascertained that Kirby 
He's the guy who's the storyteller for most of these books right here. And he put in his margin notes like he, he did just to uh, keep things on track with the guy who was going to dialogue it, which is Stan. But that was one of Stan's great gifts. And he was, he was the very best in it. I know that later on in life, Stan brought up the idea of this monster book where he would just take photos of various stills from monster magazines and put captions underneath them. Well, that kind of gives you an idea of the natural aptitude that Stan had for what he was really good at. And that's more or less what he was doing when he got the books that Jack turned in, which is fully penciled. The story was all told along with the little margin notes that would tell him exactly what was going on and Stan would take it from there. So between these two guys, they were able to work as a team and yet almost as one at the same time. It was pure magic the way these guys worked together. And um, you could never duplicate that time again. Years later, these two would be different people, and they could never create the same kind of balance or magic that took place in that time at that place. So that's another thing I'm very much aware of. People can come back and, and try to do the same TV show years later, but it's going to be different. Probably not as good. Well, as you brought up the Fantastic Four, uh, I actually read a story of yours for the very first time last night. A friend of mine pointed it out to me in 2002 for a comic called Fantastic Four Volume 3, number 50. And I just lose track of the numbering at a certain point. You did a short story with Fabian Nassiza and Mike Royer about The Thing and Johnny Storm attending a bachelor auction. And it's about 10 pages and it was pure joy or it brought back all the old memories and uh it, it certainly had your your spin on it yeah um the first thing i have to do uh in marvel knows this and everyone that i work with knows this i have to like the story <laughs> that's always number one i will consent to because the story is good a lot of things i turned down because the story is not good but that story was just wonderful it was pure wonderment so i i was on board right away and I, and I, then I drew it up and handed it in and, um, Mike inked it and, uh, sent it out to see print. And then from there, it's, it's up to the people that read it to give us hopeful feedback on it. There's a, there's a bit in it. And again, I just read it for the first time ever last night. There's a bit in it where Johnny Storm, uh, is one of the bachelors for auction and somebody buys him and he goes to this woman's penthouse apartment and he realizes he's been purchased for someone else. And the woman reveals herself to be hideously scarred. And she says, oh, I wanted you to come by tonight to help me get over my fear of fire. And she's clearly a burn victim. It's such an extreme moment. I was astonished to see it in a mainstream comic book. Well, you know, writers are not creative equal, nor are artists. That's the kind of example that if you got a really a real talent, who can extend himself beyond any sense of cliche or I've seen it before kind of mannerisms. That's what's capable uh, of a really good writer to, um, to write as a script. And I was lucky enough to get it and be able to draw it. Uh, let's, um, let's go back and talk a little bit about your, your three collaborations or perhaps there's more but i'm aware of three collaborations with mark evanier i've been a huge mark evanier fan since the early 80s i read crossfire and dn agents and 
got really interested in the way he told stories and also the way he would write afterwards for everything. Uh, but you worked on the Mr. Miracle book with him, the Space Ghost book, and that Jimmy Olsen special. Is there anything I'm missing in that list? Yeah, there was. Uh, did you mention the uh, the crossfire with the DNA agents uh, short story? This was the Rainbow story that was a backup in one of the uh, in in one of Mark's uh, DNA agent books. That was um, that happened to be one of the moments of a perfect collaboration. The story was perfect. I loved the way the art turned out to tell the story that Mark wrote, and um, that was another case of Mike Royer inking it because I always wanted to incorporate Mike in whatever I could, uh, what I thought he was compatible with. I always wanted to make sure he stayed busy with the work. But that I, re, I re, just remember that being a perfect short story, the way it turned out. I, I smile when I think about it, so it must have turned out very well. I don't know if you know this. Well, of course you know this. Uh, you drew it. You drew a Teen Titans story that references the Dan agents by doing essentially a parody of them. Do you remember this? Yeah, I sure do. Um <laughs> Funny thing about memory, you know, the the, uh, the long term is always so intact. Short term, maybe not so much. But yeah, that came about. That was a very flattering job. Um, at that at the time I did that uh, Teen Titans job, I was starting to get noticed by by the bigger uh, companies, Marvel and DC. And it's always a flattering moment when you start to get the notoriety to be on the on the uh, call list from companies like that. It's it's a thrill. You know, you go from where you started as an independent company in Madison, Wisconsin, to finally being asked to contribute to books from uh, those big companies. Because earlier on, I had made trips. Uh, I had saved up every money, every cent I had, and made trips to Marvel and, and D.C. and heavy metal and uh, other places in New York. I was living in Wisconsin, and I I knew the only serious way I could, I could advance myself was to fly or, or drive or train it or bus it or walk there by hitchhiking it didn't matter how i got there but every year i had to make a pilgrimage to those places bring the the, the current work that i had and get critiques and as long as i had that i knew i knew where i had to go after getting feedback from those companies and it was wonderful one of the great greatest times i had getting feedback from was, was from uh from neil adams and neil is one of these guys that uh uh, he's got very mixed reviews about how people think about him and what he'd say about their work, but he was nothing but, but kind, generous, and extremely helpful with uh, the things he told me about. And he, he continued to be like that for the duration of his lifetime with me. Well, he was really, really a positive force for creator rights. Yeah, he was, he was, he was one of these exceptional people that whereas anyone really could pick up that baton and do what, and do what he did in theory, they don't. But he did, and that, that's what makes him exceptional, because he actually did something. Well, getting back to you, Steve, I, I've actually been following your work since, I believe, the very beginning. I picked up those issues of, um, what was it called, uh, Vanguard Illustrated with your Encyclopedia Salesman story. <laughs> right. Before I'd even heard of Nexus, and then Nexus came not too long after that. I think I probably jumped on to Nexus when it was around issue 12 or 15, and then followed it for the years and years past that through all the miniseries. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that original uh, Vanguard story? Was that your first published work? Well, it never actually got published until we had uh, Mike Barron and I had been doing Nexus. Oh, I see. 
was uh, Pacific Comics, they called, and wanted to uh, jump on the, the Rude Baron bandwagon. And they said, do you have anything else that you've done before Nexus? And we said, well, as a matter of fact, we do. We, the first collaboration Barrett and I had was a story about a um, door-to-door encyclopedia salesman after the bomb blew up and destroyed everything. And uh, the story was so funny. It took me a year to do. I was living at the Y at the time. It was only 24 pages, but it took me forever to do it. I drew it. I inked it. I lettered it. And it stayed in black and white. But when uh, Silver Comics asked about that, we, we sent it in. They colored it up, and, and I did a cover for it. And uh, that's the history of that book. And, of course, it's separated into chapters now. It's not a 24-page story. Um, yes, we did. We did have chapters back then, but it was. I just remember I was. I was very less discerning about what I drew back then. You know, whatever they were going to give me, I. I, you just shut up and drew it. And, but the story was fair and whimsy all the way. Of course, that was one of the one of the hallmarks of Nexus is the goofy sense of humor that Baron brought to it. And that's one of the ways him and I, which are us being opposites, were in perfect tandem in Nexus. I had a goofy Doctor Seuss sense of humor. Baron had a likewise sense of humor. So whenever we would we would do that, we would mesh perfectly. <laughs> and when he would bring over scripts for me to look at before I actually drew them, that's that's the way we always worked. Barron would drive the half hour from where he lived in uh, just outside of Madison, Wisconsin, to me where I lived on campus in Madison. He would drop off the scripts, things that he, his scripts were actually uh, drawn in thumbnail form, a little more than thumbnail form back then. That's so what he drew. He drew his scripts rather than write them. And I would. We'd go over them together, and I would laugh, laugh, laugh. And Barry would just stay characteristically silent the whole time while I would be laughing the whole time. That's one of the things that, in spite of the, the heavy subject matter that Nexus often covered, you need an equal amount of, uh, of balance to go with it. And books, uh, Barry was never somebody to ignore one of the rules of writing. If you, if you, if you, if you do 100% heavy, if you don't light that up with a little bit of whimsy, you're going to get a very morose sounding comic. And that's that's not our personalities. We both have a weird sense of humor. So that would come in to balance things out. You never want too much of one thing. You want a good balance of everything. Since we've opened the Nexus box, I'm not sure if this is uh, just a rumor I heard or not, but um, I heard that you might be producing your own Nexus book this year. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Well, that's uh, the way that came about was pretty remarkable. There came a time when I objected to the direction that Baron was going with the book, with the characters. So after 15 years of, of going back and forth and trying to figure out a way to, to amend the problem that was going on, we finally, just finally decided on a, on a perfect solution. And that was Mike can do his version of Nexus and I can do mine. So he's got his book coming out, his own version of Nexus. And um, I haven't read it, but I'm excited. To, I'm just excited to know that he's happy being able to do what he does without my my critical thinking about what he was doing in the past. And, I, and that meant for me, I had to learn how to write, and that's never happened before. But what is what is life other than challenge after challenge? So that was my challenge. Nexus, in my eyes, in the way it was going to proceed, was not going to happen unless I learned how to write. So that was that was quite the moment when I, I realized you better learn how to do it or there's going to be no no version of Nexus, according to me. What's your estimated uh, publication date on that? And do you have any idea what the format will be at this time? Yeah, I sure do, because we've all we've already published one of the books right here. And I think the most the most uh, um, 
remarkable thing about the 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 books that I'm doing is that I decided that I was tired of what everyone else was doing, which is a standard comic book format. So I started thinking, what's what was what was something that everybody everybody used to love uh, around not just the country but the world itself, and that was the comic strip format. You know, why doesn't somebody revive that? Everyone used to love that. So I started off by actually producing an actual newspaper strip that was about seven pages long, along with ads. I think the, the actual page count was about, instead of being one page like you'd see in the Sunday newspaper every week, we put like four pages of uh, the actual continuity, starting from page one to uh, going on to infinity until the story was done. And we ran out of money. We were, we, I think we paid like, I don't know, $70,000 for like those six issues or something. And it was all being self-financed with the help of fans. God bless them. And it just got to be uh, too much work and too expensive. And it was just a lot, a lot of work. As, you, as these people can well imagine, the people that were helping to support us. So we had to think of something else, just like Joe Barbera and, and William Hanna did back in the 1950s. What are we going to do? So we got to think of something. So the, the answer was to produce these 11 by 17 massive hardcover books that were still in the comic strip format but they were all combined into one thing in, in in the same way that you see the prince valiant strips combined into uh, a, a gigantic book of all the strips uh under one volume so it's the same kind of idea of doing that and these these books these large very heavy 10 pound volumes of, of new nexus material that i'm doing myself are going to be the wave of well, the duration of the rest of my life, really, I'm just going to keep doing these, and they're going to be, they're going to be serialized. You know, the first big volume of, of New Nexus material was called The Coming of Gormando, that was the title of the book, and the next volume is going to be a continuation of that story, and it's going to be called The Battle for Thune World, and this story is going to be unique because I'm finally going to get a chance to show. Uh, Yuna Maccabee, the, the uh, A-play character in Nexus, battling a thousand Philistines. Samson-like. I've always wanted to do that. I've always seen that scene in my head. So the, the time finally came where I got a chance to do that. And that's something that if I was working with, with Mike Barron, that probably wouldn't have happened. So it was a very clean, direct-to-the-page vision that came out of my head, uh, directly from my head. And that's part of the fun of being my own writer in these books right now. It's it's pure Steve Rude, and it's turning out to be so much fun, and I think there should be a law against it. You're bringing me back to my teenage years. I, I was such an avid Nexus reader at that time, and yeah, the character of Judah and his dad, Dave, I remember that character so well, and he was a calm, philosophical character, whereas his son was a bit of a, a lovable brute and a womanizer and a, a drunk. <laughs> I don't know if drunk's the right yeah. word, but a gregarious character. And uh, yeah, I followed those books. So like, as I said, I read them month by month. So I was very, very engaged with that universe. You know, Nexus, the central concept of Nexus, the original concept is such a simple, perfect idea. A person dreams of murderers when they're asleep and when they wake up they are compelled to track them down and kill them it's a justice story it, it allows for all kinds of different storytelling and of course you have this character Horatio Hellpop 
who I really, really, en I enjoyed him. He was very, he was heroic, but also quite a philosophical and tortured character. All true. All barren. All barren's idea. It was a good idea, but you, you guys brought it to life in a, in a way that was very interesting. I guess it's, I'm sure you've heard this one, this question a million times, but I'm going to ask it yet again. The proposed animated series, which I've seen art for, just seemed like such a slam dunk no-brainer. I know you're probably tired of telling that story, but what happened to that animated show? Because I know you did some work on it. Well, I'm surely not tired of talking about it. It remains a, a dream in, in stasis, a dream that is kind of on hold for the duration. And how long that duration is going to last is something that no one in, in the free world is, is going to know until there's going to be either some action on it or it's going to wallow in complete indifference and, and never happen at all. Uh, obviously, I'm hoping it does, because if you were able to uh, visualize what I've got in my studio here, Michael, you, you can see literally thousands of the, the pre-production uh, steps that are needed to produce a show. And this is unprecedented, and I'm, I'm fairly sure on that. No one has ever come into proposing a TV show, an animated TV show, without with half the work done before it even starts. But I do have that. I have the scripts. I have the storyboard, I have the layouts. So all that stuff, I, I have the model sheets. It's all ready to go. So it's an astonishing amount of work that uh, I hope gets used someday in the actual production of the show. But again, the world is filled with thousands of things that are just unknown to us. But as I, as I pointed out recently to some friends of mine, the, the trick about the unknowns is that they eventually, eventually become known. But you just have to wait to find out. So we'll see on that. I think I heard 10 or even 20 years ago, uh, and again, I don't know how true this is, that when it came to the animated show, the proposal was in front of a group who were interested in, in producing it, just so long as you removed that whole thing where Nexus kills people, which made it pretty much impossible to tell that story because, well, what do you do with him then? He just rounds up these killers and puts them in jail. Yeah, that was part of the silliness that I first uh, had to engage in and kind of wade through. That was part of some of the people that were uh, initially displaying interest in the series. And that was people from Kids Fox, Fox Kids or whatever they, whatever they called it. And this was just a, a bunch of nonsense to me. I, these are the kind of people that I instantly dismissed, had no interest in furthering talks with these kind of people. And this is kind of the kind of thing that's all up to me saying yes or saying no. And so far, though we've had many, many people that we've had table talks with, none of them have ever displayed the kind of the kind of interest, sincerity, and, and backing up the kind of vision that I had to make me saying yes to anything taken seriously. So I've, I've, I've said no. And you say no when, when you know that you're avoiding a very bad start. And I had a teacher one time, one of my great teachers, uh, who uh, taught me art, but he was much more than, a, than an art teacher. And one of his famous quotes that he passed on to me was, never save a bad beginning. Well, uh, there is some test animation for that Nexus show out there, isn't there? I think I've seen a, like, sort of a trailer for it that you must have produced at some point. Yeah, the test animation has actually been on YouTube for about 10 years now, if not more. And... Uh, the test animation was the second attempt at producing a so-called pilot, or as you say, it's nothing more than test animation 
that would be shown to potential buyers. And the purpose of that is rather than tell them about the show, you show them. So I, I got together a group of animators that were pros. Most of them were, were from DreamWorks that I would kind of hijack in the weekends and tell them about the scenes that I had laid out and say, okay, can you animate this? And they would be able to give it their best shot. And the experience was kind of a nightmarish uh, ordeal because it was I wasn't paying these people. And the people I did pay eventually got paid in, in drawings and paintings. <laughs> and we were moving at the time, too, from... Uh, from LA to uh, Phoenix, where I currently live right now. So there was, and we had two babies on the way, or actually they were more than on the way, they were already here. So there was a lot of complications going on, which is just the way life works out half the time, uh, more than half the time. But I succeeded and I I ended up, you know, producing a DVD that I had passed out to people that uh, displayed interest in the proposed series. Um, somehow that got on uh, YouTube. I didn't put it on myself, but some fan did. And it's been on there long enough for the potentially interested parties to know what it's about and make an, make an overture towards me if they were serious about pursuing it. But even with Dark Horse, lately been trying to shop it around all the big the big hoo-hahs uh, in, the, in the business, like the Disney and HBO and... Uh, Amazon and all these people, um, it's never been sold. So take that for whatever you make it to be. Um, I think they're going about it all wrong. And my personal vision of how this should be, which is pretty profound and pretty strong, don't go to these big companies. They're not going to take it seriously. And what I'm looking for is a fan, Michael. I'm looking for a fan that has a lot, a lot of money. <laughs> and this fan, this fan has to believe in it like I do. And basically just be there as a, as a support system um, that can afford this. He's also got to be someone who's sincere in the fact that he doesn't back out at the last minute. Because that's, that's very common with a lot of things. They talk about it, they act like they're excited, and then somehow for some reason, for whatever that is, they, uh, they lose faith in it. They get cold feet, and they, they call you up one day and say, well, I changed my mind, I'm not going to do it. So we don't need that kind of nonsense in their lives. We need someone who's totally committed. Because if they're not then I'll never get my show. And I'll never get my show if I don't find somebody like that. So my instincts mean what they are, which are very strong. That's the way I see this happening. And I don't see it happening any other way because I don't want to be under the thumb of people that regard this as some kind of tax write-off or just another stupid thing that they're investing in that they care nothing about. Uh, just to jump back to something that you said a little bit earlier, you mentioned that some of your collaborators got paid in drawings and posters, and that it just struck this tiny memory with me from, this has got to be at least 20 years ago, a friend of mine who is a cartoonist went to a party at Matt Wagner's house, and we're talking about a very busy party, and at one point they were all in Matt's studio, dozens and dozens of people, and my friend said, there's this Steve Rude original on the wall right there. Anybody could just grab that and leave. <laughs> I just remember him name-checking you in that particular moment. Matt, uh, Matt Wagner, you know, when we were young, and it was the 1980s, those, those were very exciting times. They all tend to be exciting times when you're, when you're in your 20s because you, um, you're just starting out, and you don't know what's going to happen. And, and because you don't know what's going to happen, things are exponentially more exciting. And you're always, you're trying hard and you're trying to learn everything you can and you're trying to make your mark in the business. Matt made the leap into taking a, uh, I believe, a national tour of comic book shops to promote 
his his comics, Mage and whatever the other one was, Grendel. And he made a stop in Madison. He wanted to come in and meet me, and so I met him. And I'm sure it was just a simple matter of passing on something to him and him passing on something to me. That's very cool. Uh, Matt Wagner, I believe, lived in Montreal for a couple of years, which is where I'm headquartered. I never met him at that time, but a few of my friends were in the same circles. So that's how I remember that story. You know, at the time, you know, Matt had long hair and um, we were we were all all thin, of course, like you tend to be if you're in your 20s. And we all look cool and handsome and, and, uh, and fit. You could all be your own models at that point. We could, and I'm still struggling to do that with myself by keeping up with the gym twice a week. Is that a home gym, or do you go out? I go out because it's my only way of actually socializing these days. I go, I go twice a week. I have a personal trainer because I'm too lazy to go on my own, and I actually hate going. But I'd rather stay here and work. But that's just too bad, Steve Rude. You got to go anyway. You got to adopt the um, John Romita Jr. method. I think he works out seven days a week, and it's something like he gets to the gym at 5 a.m., does his two or so hours before he starts his day. I, I heard an interview with him recently. He seems absolutely obsessed. I was obsessed for 40 years, but when it, it kind of got into 50 years, I started to slow down a little bit. That's very understandable. Let's get back to talking a little bit about influences in general on your career. And I can list many of the books you've done. Specifically, I think it's the Marvel and DC books where you are paying a lot of homage to your influences. There's a lot of uh, different books where there's, there's just little nods and hints. Obviously, there's a lot of Kirby going on. Yeah. In the Mr. Miracle book... Thor Godstorm has some Kirby in there. Obviously, it's Thor. Whenever I would do a project that was almost always Kirby-related, for example, they would be baffled by the fact that I would assume a Kirby-type style to do the book in. He drew all these characters, and they were now asking me to draw these characters for uh, someone who grew up trying to draw like Jack Kirby. In fact, that he was the guy that I learned to draw from in the first place when I was copying his drawings back in high school. They didn't know what to make of that. And they mentioned that several times, and they were confused, as I was confused, about why I didn't draw it in, in my natural style. I mean, there's always going to be a lot of my natural style, but when you're drawing a Thor, a book that I do is a Kirby book, you drew it with a sense of uh, Jack Kirby in the back of your mind. The same with the Spider-Man books. It was all remitted to me. So, but it couldn't really exist or feel real to me or are authentic unless it was done in the spirit of the guys I grew up reading that made the books so incredible to me. So Spider-Man was John Romita. Uh, all the other books were, were Kirby. And The Hulk and Superman was part Kirby and part Joe Schuster. Uh, just to finish on uh, some of the comics you did and the influences that I saw in them, uh, this, is, this is an interesting coincidence. Uh, I was looking through Captain America, What Price Glory, this four-issue miniseries that you did with Bruce Jones. And as I was looking through it, I received a confirmation from Bruce Jones that he's going to uh, let me interview him in the near future. Bruce Jones is a really nice guy. His personality is, is very laid back, very friendly, very innately friendly. So he's just, he's the perfect kind of guy that you want to hang out with because he's, 
be so laid back and so relaxed. I'm a little more hyper, a little more hardcore, and what do people call me? The uh, eccentric, you know, things like that. So I'm a little more idiosyncratic, but Bruce Jones is a normal kind of a guy. So you'll definitely want to talk to him. I'm looking forward to hearing his uh, late 60s New York stories. I think he has a few of those, some experiences he had in that era. I'd like to hear those stories, too. On that Captain America story, when it comes to influences, uh, on that one, you were, again, inked by Mike Royer. And I felt like there's that Kirby that I recognize that you're you're doing a little bit of an homage to here and there. But there's also a, a few panels where I thought, well, that is clearly some Steranko in the choreography and in some of the body language? Um, very, very possibly, Michael. Um, what I remember most about that story was Marvel had this this mandate at the time that and this is when th things were starting to get really PC, which uh, is not something I, I have much patience for. I think it's the most cowardly thing you can ever do is to give in to people that have an agenda. So there was a case of all cigarettes and cigars being taken out of people's mouths. So what Marvel did was they, uh, I told them I wasn't going to do that. You know, the thing, whoever was smoking a cigar like the bad guys, they told them I couldn't, they couldn't be smoking anyone. I put them in anyway, and Marvel, instead of arguing with me as they, did, as they first did, they just ended up taking them out uh, digitally when the book got published. So if you see anybody going like this with nothing in his mouth that looks like it should be a cigar, that's what Marvel did to my, my pages in the end. I remember that era, the we will never show cigarettes or cigars anymore era of Marvel. It was the early 2000s. That's right. And the story was 2003. That's amazing. It's amazing. All right. Ran on my roof, lost to miss our plan. 